Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 71 of UAB Green and Told, original release date Monday, May 9th, 2022. This podcast allows us the chance to share stories from members of the UAB community. Want to listen into previous episodes of the podcast? Visit alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold or look us up on Spotify and the Apple Podcast app. While there, leave a written review so more alumni can find us. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and assistant director in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. If you live in the South, you probably know this week's guest. That's because Alexander Shinar's name is everywhere. But there's more to the personal injury attorney than what you see on TV or even driving down the road. As he'll share, he's a first-generation American and was told he'd be continuing his education in college, but he didn't know what he wanted to do. I really honestly didn't know. You know how some kids think they know? I do know this. My dad was always like, look, I only finished the sixth grade. You're getting your degree. There wasn't a choice about it. A legal giant now, that wasn't always the case for Alexander. And he'll explain how he navigated his young legal career by balancing ownership of a local convenience store. I was juggling being a lawyer eight to five and then, you know, making sure that the C-Store, you know, I had an employee or two back then, you know, I'd go there after work and stuff like that. Plus, you can't have a conversation with Alexander Shinar without asking about those thousands of billboards. And then I've noticed that uh, there wasn't any, in, at least in the Alabama area at the time, there wasn't that many lawyers that were utilizing billboards. And most lawyers said, hey, they don't work. commercials and billboards, Alexander Shinaro has become a pop culture icon. You can't go anywhere without seeing the personal injury attorney's face or even hearing his voice. Alexander has built somewhat of a legal empire, but you probably don't know how he got there. Born to immigrant parents on Birmingham's south side, Alexander grew up close to the heart of UAB. I love my time in the south side, and I was actually there up until the time I went to uh, Sanford University for a while before I transferred over to UAB. You're a, a first-generation American because your parents are from Jerusalem. We say Jerusalem, but they were born seven miles north of Jerusalem, which is a small town that people in the Middle East are familiar with. It's called Ramallah, and I kind of attribute it like Birmingham and Homewood, but it's seven miles north of Jeru Jerusalem. When you were young, when you were growing up, you know, in the shadow of UAB, what were you like? You know, everybody sees you now what you're like, but obviously you couldn't have been the same person back then. No, I was just a young kid. I, I had hopes. I had dreams. I had a good Middle Eastern father who owned some like a grocery store and he was a merchant and he was a peddler at first. Uh, he did a lot of that. And some of those stories, you know, I was in the flea markets a lot when I was a little kid with my dad. We played up at Glen Iris all the time. We played either baseball, basketball, football. So I was just an all-American kid. And then I ended up going to John Carroll High School. Just, just everything that you can imagine as kids. There was no social media. There was none of this stuff, you know. I've still got bruises and scratch from fights, and I've got more road rash. You'd think I owned a motorcycle as many times as I wrecked my little bicycle that I rode around on. <laughs> so you, you mentioned that your father was kind of a peddler, and you went to these flea markets. What kind of things was he selling, and, and how much did you help in the family business? So I was his only son, and I had three younger sisters. So, I mean, I was pretty involved with my dad. I really was. I was, I mean, he would take me to the flea markets when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. I think it's really helped me because that is why I'm such a people person because he'd leave me there sometimes and he would be like, okay, you know, when I come back, he would be challenging me now that I look back on it. He'd be like, you know, I want you to sell $20 worth. Was it at that point that you kind of 
were instilled with the entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, now that I look back at it, I really do think it opened my eyes to a different world and that, you know, I did understand the concept of money at a very young age and understood the value of a dollar at a very young age. I definitely learned that, you know, you've got to be able to engage with people and you've got to be able to sell and you've got to be able. I think it really helped me. You know, it wasn't like my dad was a banker, you know, that came home every day or my mother was a school teacher. So kind of got exposed to a whole different mindset. You know, there's a book by a rich man, poor man by Kawasaki. He had the two fathers in that book and he talked about, and I mean this respectfully to anybody who's listening to this podcast that are, that once you accept a paycheck, you kind of get a paycheck mentality. And since I never have ever had a paycheck and I've always had to learn like caveman days that I have to go out and hunt on a daily basis, that once you live like that, that's kind of the only way I know how to live and operate. When you were in high school, what was kind of the goal? What did you want to do when you grew up? Because at that point, it wasn't law. I really honestly didn't know. You know how some kids think they know. I do know this. My dad was always like, look, I only finished the sixth grade. You're getting your degree. There wasn't a choice about it. But if you look at kind of all the immigrant families, and I, I really can talk about this forever. You know, when you're growing up in that family, they're like, you need to be a lawyer or you need to be a doctor. And what they really were trying to tell us is if you become a lawyer or if you become a doctor, you give yourself a chance to have a good life. Finally, my dad made some money in the little C stores because that's what he did. And the only one that was really even successful was a place called Tootie's Package Store, which was on Green Springs Highway for 100 years. You actually got into business with your father for a little bit, and you were making pretty good money helping him out and kind of sharing the business, weren't you? Most people don't know this, but I don't, you know, my dad and I are still like that. Like, so he's, it's evolved over time that we went from like son, father, son, which is still a father son relationship to he just had a lot of faith in me. And uh, when I was about 22 or 23, you know, my dad is kind of an impulsive guy. And he was like, I'm going to sell you the store. I need to slow down a little bit. And he wasn't even old. But he'd been working since he was a kid, right? Since he was, you know, because when he came here, once again, they didn't have any money. They didn't have anything. Like, he was peddling at 14 years old himself. We, we made a deal. And you know, my dad was tough. So he sold me the store for like a certain amount of money. I remember it was like $85,000, but I didn't have any money. She so said, you're going to pay me over time, right? So I worked and um, I made my payment every month. And then the deal was we split the profits. But I kind of became the point man, I guess is what you'd call it. Why didn't you build a C-Store empire? Why did you decide a lot? You're making good money. When I was in the C-Store business and we had got it to its pinnacle, and when I mean pinnacle, to me, a pinnacle was, you know, we were making a couple of hundred grand a year, right? And so when I'm making a hundred grand and my dad's making a hundred grand and you're 27, you think you're rolling. You couldn't tell me anything, right? Because I was young and I had money and I had pretty girlfriends and I had a sports car and I felt like I was just rolling. But my dad being the wise old bull and me being the young dumb bull, was like, no, you got your college degree. You need to go to law school. You need to do something different. One day you're gonna be married. You're gonna have children. Go get your law degree. Uh, most people don't know this. I got accepted into Sanford Law School. Basically they said, you can't work while you're in law school. And I was like, no, I, I gotta work. 
because I own a store. But I just, I just, I didn't feel comfortable. I said, you know, what happens if, you know, you think worst case scenario, even though I really believed in my skill set, and I don't think it would have happened. So I said no. And um, I then worked for a couple years more in the C store. And then really, I just came to the conclusion on myself that I just wanted to do something different. I got robbed a couple of times. Most people don't know that. Oh, wow. And uh, you don't forget that, you know, at any time that guy could have pulled the trigger, right? And I'm like, you know what? There's probably less likely chance if I'm a professional. But so I go to, I go to night law school and I'm very competitive. So when I get there, I was like, all right, this is pretty easy. And it, it worked pretty, pretty good. But, you know, I'm an old Birmingham School of Law graduate. And uh, we actually had it up at the courthouse. If you were late, you know, it was funny. You'd have to sit in the jury chairs or sometimes the teachers would pick on me because you'd have to sit up actually in the witness box. You wind up graduating from UAB. You took a little time to to go back to school and, and get your law degree. But Alexander Schnauer, personal injury attorneys, didn't come right away after graduating from the Birmingham School of Law. You worked for, if I'm not mistaken, Corey Watson attorneys. Is that correct? Yep. So that's correct. So back to the C-stores. I'm in there and Ernie Corey, sometimes after work, he, he would come by sometimes and pick up a bottle of wine or something. And he knew who I was. And he was like, how much money do you make? I was like, well, that's an odd question because, you know, in my mind. And uh, I said, I do OK here in the C-Store. And he was like, no, really, how much money do you make? And so he was pressing me. So I was like, all right, I make 100 grand. My dad makes 100 grand. But, you know, and I'm joking back. I was like, no nothing like you make. And I'll never forget this. He's like, well, come work for me and I'll teach you how to make some real money in the law business. I was like, all right. And at that time, that was before I passed the bar. And then when I passed the bar, I called him and I reminded him of his conversation. He's like, yeah, I'll give you a job. In all fairness, I stayed there five years and it was really just an apprenticeship is what it was. I mean, I'm not going to tell you I made any money there because I didn't make anything there. I actually made probably a third of what I made at the C-Store. I was juggling being a lawyer eight to five and then, you know, making sure that the C-Store, you know, I had an employee or two back then. You know, I'd go there after work and stuff like that. And about five years later, I opened up, you know, my own law firm on Claremont. I had eight little cases. <laughs> I'll never forget my, my first month. I did about $8,000 in revenue. The red second month, 11,000, third month, 17,000. So it's been a grind. It's been like one day at a time, one step at a time. That that old saying, um, inch by inch is a cinch and a yard is hard. I'm the epitome of that. You know, a lot of people kind of just see the billboards now and you hear those stories. But if people really knew, you know, what it took to kind of grow a law firm, I mean, there, there. If you look at all the historical law firms, man, some of them are a hundred years old. And so, actually, believe it or not, our firm just turned twenty years old. I mean, we have about we have fast tracked it better than probably anybody else in the country. I mean, nobody's done what we've done in twenty years. You know, you can't double your business overnight. We we can't do it. We can't handle it. So it has to be grown. You know, inch by inch. So it started basically with you, a clerk, and just a lot of ambition. What was the key to the success? How did you launch this empire in, in 20 years? I think it was a lot of moving parts. I would say, you know, and I get asked this question all the time. I would say one of the most important things is I've never been an absentee owner. 
and I have, I'm in this space and I know this space and you would be surprised how many business people are absentee owners. And when you are an absentee owner, you don't need to own a business. They asked me a few years ago, like, what are my work hours? And I said, eyes open, eyes closed. And that is the truth. You know, they say the law is a jealous mistress. Maybe I said that in a different way. I don't even feel like I'm working. It, it, I have metamorphosed into this lawyer or this really entrepreneur and business person. And to me, it's just fun. I enjoy what I do. This is just who I am. I mean, I don't know how to be anything else now that I've been in this space for 25 years. And so I don't ever get up and feel like I'm going to work. That, that never even comes in my mind anymore. It's just, just what I do for a living. At what point over the last 20 years with the law firm did things really catch steam and really start to grow? You know, I, I call it's it's kind of like chipping the, you know, I will say, you know, it's a bad example. or Maybe it's a good example. It's kind of like you have a dam, you know, and it's just like you have, say, a little you're chipping at it and you just keep chipping. And, you know, first you get a, a few drops and then a little bit of a stream and eventually the, the dam ruptures. I would say that was really kind of when about 2010 of October, that's, that was a little bit of a milestone there. It just takes time and you got to believe in your brand and your product. Uh, my ability to have vision, my ability to not be afraid to change when I need to change. A lot of people can't adapt to things. And that's just something that I understand to survive. You know, you have to adapt. A while ago, you mentioned the billboards. When did they start going up? And how did that just explode into something that's basically pop culture in the Southeast? Once again, you know, that came by honestly. And so one day, so around 2007, I sometimes I'll have to think things through. Sometimes I'll move fast, you know, so I'm unpredictable. So I was reading, you know, and this is before you remember, I told you October of 2010. So, you know, around seven, you know, we're still struggling. And, you know, my main advertising was uh, print, the phone books. And that's all I kind of knew. And maybe some late night television at the time. I read an article and I can't remember if it's the USA Today or whatever it was. It said that San Francisco had outlawed the phone books within the city limits. And so I was like, all right, print, print is dying. <laughs> and what am I going to do? And so I then, uh, I'll never forget, I called my guy and I said, hey, I'm not going to renew next year. And, you know, he had a pretty good commission off that. So he was upset with me and I was like, no, I'm serious. And I kind of stuck to it, obviously, you know, he kept on telling me, you know, phone books will be here forever, which he was wrong. So I, I figured out, so what am I going to do? And so I started studying outdoor advertising and in studying it, I wanted to know why Coke did it, you know, or McDonald's and so forth and so on. What's amazing is everything it said about it is true. It said it was a branding mechanism. It said if you're going to keep the boards up, like, so you buy a certain number of boards, if you keep them up, like year two is better than year one, and year three is better than two, and four is better than three. And I didn't even know if you could even actually build a brand, because I don't even know if lawyers can be a brand. As we say here today, I don't know if we're a brand. I mean, we're obviously not Coke. But there's obviously some lawyers who've built household names in, in certain markets. And then some have built household names, you know, at a national level, like Morgan and Morgan, let's say. You know, billboards, um, 
you know, they were like, they need to be clean, you know, like the Nike swish, seven words or less. And so, and then I've noticed that uh, there wasn't any, in, at least in the Alabama area at the time, there wasn't that many lawyers that were utilizing billboards. And most lawyers said, hey, they don't work. And I will say this, I mean, they don't work from a direct response advertising. And that's who we are. Like we want a radio ad that says, pick up the phone and call me. We uh -huh. want a TV ad. We want, we need return on our investment. And, but then I kind of fit in my criteria and I was like, all right, I was born in Birmingham. I'm going to die in Birmingham. I just got married. I have a couple of kids. I'm not leaving. I'm not going to do anything but practice law. So could this kind of fit in my little arsenal? And so I just bought 10 boards. And what I noticed was it was the weirdest thing, even though like I had the phone books and I was actually on late night television and I knew everybody. It's like every day someone's like, I saw your board. That's a nice picture. I saw your board. That's a nice picture. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Like nobody says anything about anything else, but they're, they're commenting on my boards. And I guess the rest is history. You know, 10 led to 50 and 50 to 100 and 100 now to 2,500 in the Southeast. And so, and I've always had a good partner in Lamar. You know, there's all kinds of rumors out there, and I love them. I married, I married the daughter of Mr. Lamar in Baton Rouge, or I must have some dirt on Lamar. But in the end, you know, they've been a good partner, and 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 they've always worked with me. And I, so it's been a win-win for both of us because I really what the phone book is now, what the billboards have actually become, and it's helped the outdoor industry. Is it's the new phone book for lawyers. That's all it has become, and so. They're really the winners and the recipient of print going dead. And now actually with all the streaming services and everything, you know, somebody's just shining on the outdoor world because that's just something you can't escape. It's pretty interesting how just sometimes you needed a little luck, but they, the outdoor industry has really, really benefited from, you know, just how things from print to, like I said, nobody's watching TV as much. And uh, but you can't escape them because you still have to get in your car and you still have to move around in this world. And um, as long as these municipalities allow them, you're going to see somebody on there for something. It, it has been a very good branding mechanism. It's hard to measure, right? Yeah. You, you can't measure it, really. And that's what kind of shies some people away from them. You know, if you buy one board, you're wasting your time and money. <laughs> if you buy 10, you're wasting your time and money. It's a long term play. How did your experience at UAB help lay the foundation for the success that you've achieved? The UAB was, I loved UAB, you know, so I mean, like I said, I, I was roommates with Andy Kennedy. That never hurt. He was the star basketball player there, you know, at the time. And um, I got to know a lot of people. But you know what UAB did for me is different, respectfully, than Sanford. It was very culturally oriented. And that's what I liked about UAB. I mean, it had a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures. It, it was also more of a mindset that you could actually work and go to school. Look, it was Birmingham. And so I, I loved every minute of, it, you know, and I, you know, I still have people come up to me all the time. So you remember when we were in political science class, you remember when we were in this sociology class. And sometimes I do remember, sometimes I don't remember, but uh, UAB was, it was, it was good. And, and so was Birmingham school of law, because those were, you know, when you go to night law school, you're serious about trying to, move in the right direction right you're not going to my law school just for fun what was it like being andy kennedy's roommate look i look we've obviously both done pretty well but if you would have been say a fly on the wall and you would have been living with andy and i 
on Valley Avenue, you know, behind the Arby's and the Sammy's and all that Knob Hill and all those Beacon Parkway, you would probably say those guys are never going to be anything in life. They're never going to amount to anything. <laughs> I mean, we were just, I, I was telling somebody a story the other day. I remember we would try to like scrounge up, you know, the Caesar's pizza two for two for $10, you know, like there were some nights we were like trying to get, you know, some just pizza money. And those were the times when before I, you know, my dad, you know, entrusted me with the store. And there were sometimes, as you can imagine, he was mad at me. So he cut me off for a month or two. So I didn't have any money working. It was, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, he had dreams of wanting to be, you know, a professional basketball player. And I had dreams of wanting to be an entrepreneur and, you know, it, it, it looks like God has blessed us both. That's Alexander Shinara, a 1991 graduate of the UAB College of Arts and Sciences, where he earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in government. In 2001, Alexander started his own law firm and was recognized as a UAB Excellence in Business Top 25 Award recipient in 2017. Today, Alexander's law firm is headquartered in his hometown of Birmingham, and as a lifelong resident and graduate of UAB, he definitely has a good idea of what it means to be a Blazer. To me, I mean, it's real simple. I mean, look, if you're a Blazer, you're Birmingham, you know? I mean, nobody can ever confuse a Blazer. UAB is now, I, now as a lawyer, now that I've been here my whole life, I'm 55 years old, I mean, I mean, it's the state's largest employer. I understand UAB as well as anybody. I understand the dynamics. I understand the infrastructure. It is Birmingham. <laughs> I mean, it's only going to get bigger. It is only going to get bigger. Be sure to listen into previous episodes of UAB Green and Told. You can find all of them at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Have a story to share? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search UAB Alumni. Thanks for listening, and until next time, go Blazers!